Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, taking time to disconnect the kids From the tablets and smartphones, we'll talk about how too much screen time can affect our kids' physical and even emotional health. Plus, a new research center is focusing on mental health support for Georgia's military and public safety personnel. And it'll be housed at Kennesaw State University. And in just a moment, the clock is ticking on a lot of bills as state lawmakers have had little time to pass measures. Our WAB's politics team will join me a little bit later in the show with an update. All that's ahead. But first this, Fulton County law enforcement has a new unit to track repeat offenders. It's a joint operation meant to reduce crime, but advocacy groups say the unit does not address the reason crime happens in the first place. Emily Wu Pearson has more. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens said at a press conference Tuesday that more than 40 percent of crime in Atlanta is committed by the same 1,000 individuals. He said the city is addressing that with the repeat offender tracking unit. The unit will include members from the police department, sheriff's office, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and the Atlanta Police Foundation. District Attorney Fonnie Willis said repeat offenders will now be flagged at the moment of arrest. We are literally giving them a scarlet letter so that the prosecutors and investigators who touch these files know that this is a case where we need to pay more attention and make sure that justice is actually served. Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt said that might look like fuller jails. But Devin Barrington Ward, a member of the Alliance to Close the Atlanta City Detention Center, said having more people in jail does not make communities safer. Instead, he said the city needs to direct resources to help address why people commit crime. It's coming from poverty. It's stemming from uh, substance abuse. It's stemming from a lack of mental health services. He said that could look like more funding for drug abuse programs, housing assistance, and mental health services that specifically can address trauma people might face in jail. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, the CEO of Delta Airlines says a major government investment is needed to develop aviation fuels that are better for the environment. Speaking at a forum hosted by the Atlanta Press Club, Ed Bastian says airlines can also do their part by investing in more fuel-efficient aircraft now. He says Delta accelerated efforts to replace its fleet during the pandemic. It's not built on sustainable aviation fuels, but it's making a big difference in the footprint. In every plane that we take, and this this year we'll probably take about 75 new planes into our fleet, is coming about 20 to 25 percent on average more fuel efficient. Bastian went on to say Delta is still committed to being a, quote, net zero emissions company by 2050, even though the pathway to get there isn't entirely clear. And also, today's rain should help with the pollen. I know some of y'all are dealing with that. You know that yellow haze of pollen coating everyone and everything across the metro is not only worse than average this year, guess what, but it's also earlier. Dr. Stanley Feynman is a physician with Atlanta Allergy and Asthma. Since Valentine's Day this year, we've seen pollen counts in the high range in really almost half the days uh, since that time. So that's very unusual. Hmm. Now, Wednesday's pollen count neared 2,400, making it the single worst allergy day of the season so far. And finally, some of the Atlanta Hawks first release non-fungible tokens, or as we plain folks say, NFTs, sold for more than $8,000. The 40 unique digital images of its mascot, Harry the Hawk, went on the auction block earlier this month. Jen Choi is the Atlanta Hawks Senior Director of Innovation and Impact. She says the bidding started at $50. Hmm. 
Hmm, some NFTs went for a lot more, others, not so much. Still, she says the team learned a lot about the process. So if we do this again, I imagine it might be a combination of auction, you know, less expensive buy now, or even, you know, free NFTs. We're doing a free NFT giveaway on April 6th at our Hawks vs. Wizards game. Free is always good. So will NFTs be the new NBA norm? You can hear more from that conversation with Jen Choi and WABE's All Things Considered host, Jim Burris. Find that conversation online at WABE.org. But this got all of us here, the Closer Look team, thinking how much would a Closer Look NFT fetch? I say we'll start the opening bid at $1.98. Some of you will immediately get this reference. Others, not so much. Showing my age. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. We know this legislative session reforming access to Georgia's mental health services and treatment has been high priority for state lawmakers. And now with House Bill 1013 set to become a law, it helps as Georgia's national ranking regarding mental health has been last or nearly last in recent years. So continuing with the conversations about expanding mental health resources in the state, we now turn to Kennesaw State University. KSU recently launched a new research center with a focus on reducing suicide, anxiety, and depression among Georgia's military and public safety personnel. It's called the Center for the Advancement of Military and Emergency Services Research, or Ames Research. And the center was founded by KSU Assistant Professors of Psychology Brian Moore and Israel Sanchez Cardona, both join me now. Professors, welcome to the program. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having us. Let's yeah, begin with you. let's begin with this because I want to get your just your thoughts about Georgia lawmakers passing that bill, uh, House Bill 1013. I'll start with with you Brian Moore in terms of what was needed. It's not a complete fix, but definitely it's a step in the right direction. Uh, Brian, your thoughts on lawmakers passing this bill? I, I agree. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And it's sort of a, a foot in the door, if you will, as lawmakers continue to think, what can we do for our first responder and emergency services populations here in the state? And so, you know, with this bill, we do see some ability to advance um, advance initiatives to provide behavioral for students. Mm-hmm. You know, so we help provide access to students. And here at KSU, we have a Council of Social Work Education accredited master's in social work program. And so I know that's something that we've had in-depth discussion about here and, and the ability for 1013 to assist our students and then to go into the community and help connect resources and provide behavioral health care that's culturally relevant to these mm-hmm. populations. Israel, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, as Brian said, it's very important. It's a, it's a first step. Um, to keep providing the resources that are needed for especially to this population that faces great challenges. And we know that the, the mental health uh, concerns are, are higher um, because of the challenges that they face in, the, in their daily activities. So I think it's it's the first step to address those important issues. And we should note, too, that a big part of this is, and why it's in the name, it's, it's parity in health coverage, requiring most insurance companies to cover mental health care the same way physical health is covered. Israel, mm-hmm. I'll stay with you. How important is that? Um, mental health, you, you, you mean? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Oh, oh in terms of the parity, in terms of the insurance, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, we know that that there's a uh, there's an issue of mental health, especially in the populations that we work first response of military, and that affects the type of, the type of work that they do. 
and and the effectiveness of the type of work. And it's it's there are services that we receive as a community. So it's important to address not only what it's what it's seen, which is the physical injuries, but also those mental health issues that are sometimes are unseen and people usually don't look for help because of stigma, because of barriers in the in, in treatments, the accessibility of those treatments. So putting out there the resources that are needed make it uh, more accessible to address issues that we know that affect not only the performance, but also the services that they are conducted in the community. Brian, your thoughts on this in terms of the parity here and in health coverage, health co- look, mental health is part of our overall health. So the fact that it required a law now to come in and say, hey, we're going to cover mental health like you would cover someone breaking an arm or breaking a leg. I think it's more difficult to sort of characterize for a lot of individuals, you know, so if we think about post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury, or even sleep disorders, you know, sleep disorders on their face, you know, if you aren't sleeping for a long time, maybe I will see bags under your eyes or something, right? Those are more readily apparent individuals who are experiencing hyperarousal or intrusive cognitive content. Maybe we don't immediately see those influences or impacts. And so, you know, I, I think this bill we mentioned before is a good first step. And when we consider law enforcement or community service personnel, you know, additional work in particular is needed. And I know the House and the Senate are both working on uh, variations of the bill, and they're they're discussing this internally tomorrow in terms of how do we better provide that care, not just rehabilitative care and mm-hmm. medicine, but how do we develop a prehabilitative approach to reduce the impacts of trauma that individuals experience. Well, then let's get into what you all now will have at Kennesaw State. You know, this is a center for the advancement of military and emergency services research. How did all this come about? Uh, Professor Morrall, I'll let you continue on. Well, thank you. So uh, we, I'm Israel and I both started here in 2020. So, you know, kind of at the height of the pandemic. And we heard a lot, you know, nationally about, you know, thanking our first, you know, our first line uh, workers and our first responders and populations of that nature. So I, I kind of, I say I grew up, I I joined the army right out of college and I spent a lot of that time, you know, traveling the world and and meeting people and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of experiencing some of the negative and dysfunctional things that happen around the world. And, and after several years of that, I ended up leaving active duty because I I wanted to help people uh, in a medical type of capacity. So I pursued a PhD in health psychology focused on military populations. And I did that in Texas at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And so while I was there, I started working a little bit with firefighters and, and I did a trauma fellowship. And when I moved back to Georgia, I said, well, what resources are here in Georgia to help first responder populations? And I looked across um, you know, institutions of higher education and in the public university system, there was really no one doing active duty military research. Mm-hmm. And there were even fewer people that seemed to be doing uh, public safety research. You know, we do have some individuals in the community who are experts in the treatment of public safety personnel, but there's no sort of command and control element or beacon on the hill, if you will, for mm-hmm. individuals who want to learn more and want to do more to look to and point a finger and say, hey, let me contact X to get an answer as to how we can treat things. And so you, that's where we no. we proposed the AIM Center to uh, Kennesaw State and, you know, recognizing the need with KSU being the first Purple Heart University in the state. It was an immediate fit. Well, that was my first question. How unique will this center be in terms of uh, on institutions of higher education? It sounds like this is this, this will be almost a, something that other maybe institutions will try to emulate because I had never heard of anything like this. So to, to our knowledge, this is the first in the university system of Georgia. And so what we're hoping, uh, you know, when, when you always think about developing programs to help people, you have to think about scalability, right? If I do a, a canned food drive, I'm helping 10, 20, 50, 100 people, but you're helping that 100 people. And so anyone could do a canned food drive. So what if we put one in every community? What if we put two in every community? Suddenly now we are able to readily scale and help more people. The same thing happens in institutions of higher education. We're able to leverage university resources and university infrastructure and the students who are coming in and inform and educate them in public safety and public health matters. Uh, And so that could be toward any group who is at risk for health disparities. 
Israel Sanchez Cardona, you serve, you are an assistant professor of psychology at Kennesaw State University, and you will serve as the associate director. And just hearing what uh, Professor Moore had to say, since there is no blueprint for you all. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're smiling definitely. at me like, yeah, Rose, it's all on us. Uh, how are you <laughs> no, all going about, de- how are you all going about developing the curriculum and, and everything and, and what students in the community will be involved in? Yeah, basically, in, in that sense, we're bringing, um, although this is new, this is unique to center, uh, working with this specific population, but we bring a lot of experience, not just ourselves, a lot of our collaborators working in the type of work that we're doing with different with different organizations. In my case, I'm an organizational psychologist by training, focused on occupational health, and I've been leading some occupational health assessment, developing some programs, some training programs, curriculum and interventions to promote workers' health in different scenarios, um, basically in Puerto Rico in, in large-scale programs. So basically when, when Dr. Moore and I just started this idea was let's just bring together um, the work that we've developed in, in looking at what kind of personal resource, psychological resources in terms of resilience, self-efficacy, psychological hardiness, what are the things that we can start promoting at organizations to um, increase health and well-being. So based on that experience, we're trying to build that, that blueprint that, that's gonna focus our goal and, and to lead the kind of programs that we wanted to develop in the future. I wanna stay with you for a moment because when you talk about organizational assessments and intervention programs, yes. that's gonna look differently depending on whatever that, it might look different for a public radio environment as opposed to when we talk about folks who are out there on, on yes. the, our military and, and our obviously our first responders, so you it's a it like you said it's an organizational assessment. Yes, duh. Yes, right, as the kids say. <laughs> for me, not for you. That's for me. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's that's mainly the first step that we're that we're putting here. This this type of organizations are very complex, and each different department, each different organization has their own challenges and their own complexities. So how can we address those issues if we don't understand what are the real challenges that that um, the fire department, the police department, um, emergency services um, organization, it's, it's facing on every county or in every city in, in the state. So what we were trying to do is to look at or, or trying to um, get collaborations with these organizations to help them to first understand and then to look at what are the resources that we can develop and provide. Professor Brian Moore, bringing you back into this conversation, you served as a member of the Georgia of Georgia Governor's Veteran Suicide Prevention Task Force. So many, we know the plight of just obviously with mental health in this in this nation. When we talk about our our veterans, our military personnel. And I want to ask you: Have you had? Have you experienced any loss among your fellow veterans or, or military members, or know of someone who died by suicide? I I do, um, and and I have. So, and and that's another part. There's obviously a lot of these things are sort of multifaceted and multi-layered, right? We often, as researchers, tend to gravitate toward things that we know. Um, or things we've experienced. And, and so when I mentioned I left active duty military is because I, I thought I could make a bigger difference for more people outside of uniform. Um, and so in my case, what got me interested in military health in particular, and now I see the exact same issues, but less focus on them in emergency services population was I had a soldier um, commit suicide. Uh, and so she completed suicide. And she said, hey, I, I intend to kill myself. And I took her to a, see a, a social worker that we had. Uh, and I was under the impression at the time that this person was a psychologist. And turns out this person was not a psychologist. They were a social worker and they weren't even licensed. They were a trainee. And this poor dude was just, he was running uh, effectively a clinic for about 800 people all by himself uh, because he was the only person that happened to be there at that time. And and so he was, you know, understaffed, overwhelmed, and he said, she'll be fine. And, and then she went home later that evening and, and completed a suicide. And so I, I got really sort of upset about it. And I started looking at what are the resources available to military and, you know, the Department of Defense and the VA have put billions and billions and billions of dollars into these, um, you know, sort of signature injuries uh, of the post 9-11 conflicts. And so we see the same thing with um, you know, suicide has gone up, PTSD has gone up, traumatic brain injuries have gone up, but 
we can't consider these in isolation or these by themselves. We have to look at these sort of within the ecosystem that they exist. And so I do individual work and Israel does organizational work. And so what we try to do is look at how organizational policies and leadership influence mm-hmm. individuals and in turn how individuals influence leadership and policy. Is it a fair question to ask then about the top three priorities? Because all of it is priority when you when you talk about this area. But do you but do you have to sort of, you know, in some type of line item say, well, we definitely know we need to look at this and then look at this and look at this. And either you or Professor uh, Sanchez Cardona can take this. Yeah, that, that's a really difficult question because, uh, as you said, every single aspect is important. So right now, um, I think that our priority is to identify those partnerships and to to establish and, and to start the research. We're mainly researchers. So basically, our approach is to going from research to practice perspective. So as I was saying earlier, we want to identify with the with specific organizations, specific collaborators that can help us to identify what are the primary issues, what are the important issues that we can document with research. And based on that, start to develop the, and prioritize what are the important aspects that we what, that we need to address. Professor Moore, you want to add anything to that? It's, I, and I think you, you sort of accurately stated it in the beginning, when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, priorities change for individual groups. We met with a director of a 911 center this morning for a very large center. And, you know, their unique issues uh, that they face are not the same as a fire department we met with the day before. It's not the same as a an American Legion or a Veterans of Foreign Wars post that we've met with. And so what we do is we try to take each individual uh, as an individual and look at their unique issues. You know, in Georgia, there are 159 counties and mm-hmm. 568 cities. We can't help everyone right now. And so we're, we're working to identify collaborators and connections and, and see what we can do with those individuals so that way we can further expand across the state. And when you all be able to add in terms of your own personnel, because, again, you two can't do this alone, you need help. We uh, we, we are working on it. And so we do have collaborators here at KSU. We have affiliate faculty. We have one person who uh, has a, a PhD and she did uh, fellowship work in, with firefighters and she's worked with civic organizations. We have another affiliate faculty who has a, a doctorate in social work and she has done uh, extensive work with incarcerated populations. We have other faculty members who are clinicians, who are public safety psychologists. We actually just partnered with a public safety psychologist yesterday to help her better provide services to a large sheriff's department uh, in northern Georgia. And so we're also partnering with community people and and then adding from our resources where we can. And will there be a separate set of unique research or or assessments for for women in this area as well? Mm I, I think it depends on the on the populations and the groups. So mm-hmm. if we look at firefighters, for instance, there are not a lot of female firefighters. Certainly sure. there are health disparities that exist. Yeah. Uh, looking more toward 911 call centers and first responder, other first responder populations. I think what we see, you know, sort of weaving, you know, the people who read the literature, and, and I wonder this in the state of Georgia, it's something we certainly could look at. Uh, you know, is, is in terms of family planning. So mm-hmm. a study I just read came out that said military folks tend to, or military families tend to delay family um, development or, or making families or the prioritization of making families because they move so frequently and they have high rates of stress and they're separated during, uh, you know, specific times. So I wonder that about our first responder population as well. And I've never seen any research like that. And I think that would be an interesting thing to pursue. Professor Sanchez Gordona, I'll give you the last word. Where you hope this center will be in five years? Wow. Um, I would love to see this center grow and establish as as a, as a referent in, in Georgia, not only uh, research, but also on, on the type of implementation science that we do and the type of programs that we develop. Uh, as, as Brian was saying, this is just a work that we started together, but there are a lot of other um, faculty members who are part of the of the task, so I think that's important. 
From Kennesaw State University, Assistant Professors of Psychology, Israel Sanchez-Cardona and Brian Moore, been talking about KSU Center for Advancement of Military and Emergency Services Research. Thank you both for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Professor Moore, thank you for your service. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Question, do you all keep track of your own screen time or your family screen time? Does your family have a screen time policy? Try this and see what happens. You're missing a crucial moment in Maggie's development because of these. From now on, we're going to limit the time we spend looking at our stupid phones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And then we'll have a conversation. (laughs) Steve Jobs wouldn't let his children use his iPads. And he was a great parent, I assume. From now on, everyone gets a half hour of screen time a week. And that's it. Really, Marge? You think you can give up your Pinterest? My cake fails are important. If people fail at cake, they need to be told. Okay, half an hour a week for everyone, including me. (laughs) Of course, that is from America's favorite family, The Simpsons. Uh, Let me tell you something. That would not work in my household. But prior to today's show, producer Daniel Rezell and I shared our average screen time. He's going to pop in for a moment. Daniel, how are you? Hey Rose, good to good to be on. Uh, how was your on screen your on your on screen time for last week? Um, so for the last seven days, I came out to uh, just over twenty six hours. So that's a little under four hours a day. Yeah. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and well, and and in my defense, I've noticed before you're defending it, already. I didn't even ask you anything. Well, because I'm expecting you. <laughs> But uh, I have noticed that in weeks where I'm working, that I use it more. And I think that's because I'm checking my mail app. I'm looking up things for work, mm-hmm. whatever, on my commute. But when I have days off, that I'm using my phone a lot less. So I think I think there's something to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. When I'm not working. <laughs> I'm working. Yeah. Okay. Now, my weekly for the last seven days came out to brace yourself. Jody Bombstein is going to join me in a minute. 45 hours and two minutes. Wow. (laughs) That's the last seven days. And 28 hours and 15 minutes was on social media. Jeez, I need to get out more. Now, we should note, screen time is calculated when your phone is unlocked. But think about how much screen time the kids are using. Watching streaming channels, playing games, tablets, smartphones, playing video games on consoles like PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo Switch and all that. But do you monitor or regulate how much time the kids are allowed on these devices when it's not related to school? Well, we'll discuss this further. We'll blame it all on Jody Baumstein, who's going to tell you parents what to do. She's a licensed therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and she's with the Strong for Life team. Jody, I'm sending you all the mail from the kids. I used to, they used to love me. I don't know what's going to happen after this segment, though. Welcome. <laughs> um, what is the mission of... First, let's get this out of the way. What's the mission of CHOA's Strong for Life? I was curious about that. Yeah, absolutely. Strong for Life is about raising healthy, safe, resilient kids. So really, we're thinking about the whole child here, not just their physical wellness, which is historically what Strong for Life focused on. So anybody who used to be familiar with it, it was really about nutrition, physical activity. And then over the last several years, we've really expanded that to include emotional wellness. So how do you help kids name their feelings, express them, cope with them? There's also the safety aspect, things like water safety, firearm safety, all of that. We're really looking at how do you impact kids wherever they are so that they're hearing consistent messages, whether they're at school, early care center, at the pediatrician or after school. Strong for Life is really about making sure that they're getting these clear, consistent messages wherever they are. Do you track your own screen time? I actually don't. Um, (laughs) I haven't been doing it. I think I'm trying more so to just be in touch with making sure I have balance throughout my life. I'm getting enough quality sleep. I'm getting physical activity and things like that. So I haven't personally been tracking it, but I think for a lot of people who have concerns, tracking it and actually looking at data can be very helpful. Well, is this a responsibility that goes both ways for kids and parents? Should parents be leading by example? before we get get into some other areas or, you know, 
because look, I, I'm I'm just scrolling and reading. I'm not posting. Now nah, now nah, I'm <laughs> defending myself like Daniel was. You know? Yeah, I I think it's a great question. I think role modeling is a big part of it because when we just say to kids, "Well, you have to do this because I told you so." or because you're the child and I'm the adult, it doesn't teach them why. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what we're trying to do is really shift our mindset to think about the long-term gain. We don't want a short-term fix. We want to think about how do we set kids up to be successful adults? So if we're not taking the time to explain the why and role model, role model it ourselves, the second we're out of the way, that habit's gone. It hasn't really stuck in them. So let's talk about this because kids use all sorts of tech to stay connected, obviously with friends. And then we know the pandemic and then they play video games and social media. But so there is a possible negative social impact from limiting kids screen time. So you're saying, is there a negative impact of limiting it? Yeah, because they are connected now. I mean, with the pandemic, that was the only way they could be connected. So now we're going right. to say, okay, you need to come off of this device now because mm -hmm. we're getting, well, not return to normal, but, you know, we going somewhere that's better. Right, right. Well, I think you bring up a good point, and it's also about quality. So, for instance, when people were engaging throughout the pandemic in FaceTime, that's real connection. I mean, they're talking to each other. They're hearing each other laugh. They're making eye contact, watching body expressions and facial expressions. That's very different than just messaging on Instagram back and forth, using emojis, not really using words, bullying people, all the stuff that can come from the safety of hiding behind a screen. So I think there are a couple different layers to this. And we don't want to just say a blanket statement that all screen time is mm -hmm. bad because it does help us stay connected to people who live in other states. And that's going to go beyond the pandemic. But I think when we really talk about social connection, we do have to talk about what does that really mean? And I say that because I will even hear from some teenagers that they might have a hundred likes on a photo they posted, but they have no one to talk to. Mm. And I think that's where we have to help them make this distinction. We are hardwired for connection. We need it desperately as humans, but that's not connection. And I think that's confusing for kids. You know, well, I've got a thousand friends on Instagram, but I'm lonely. Hmm. I have a, a question from an emailer, a listener in an email. It says, so then where do I begin? Because if I tell my kids they have a set number of hours on the phone, it's going to be hell in my household. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a great question. And I mean, ideally, we want to back way up with everything that we're talking about and start this from birth. Of course, it's never too late, but in an ideal world, we want to talk about this starting at birth. And I know some people might be wondering, why would we talk about this during infancy? It's not relevant. And a lot of times we don't talk about these kinds of things until we're trying to set a limit and we're getting that resistance. But if we really back up and think about why is this important starting at birth? Because that's when this starts to become an issue, right? Mm -hmm. If we think about infancy, Babies learn from humans, not from screens, but we're constantly fed these ads. Oh, there's this great program. There's this great toy. This is going to help them learn. But what we know is that screens actually have a negative impact on their language development, their sleep, their attention and focus, which is why the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't even recommend it in the first 18 months of life beyond the video chatting that you talked about, because there's value in that. So we know instead we really need to focus on human connection in those moments, you know, when they go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, how do we do that in a society yeah. where in the morning I wake up and I say, Alexa, what's the weather? And then I go over to the, the touch screen TV and I can touch it and my morning news show comes on and I can, you know, look on my phone and see whether or not I'm running out of milk in my refrigerator because I have a sm I don't I'm just this is just you know hearsay but you have a refrigerator where you that you can talk to you can turn mm -hmm. on the oven with your phone I mean that's where we are in society everything is so digitally or or inner there's this interactiveness with machines that that's part of our daily lives now I mean mm -hmm. it's kind of hard right I know and I know look every household doesn't have a smart speaker and maybe I spend too much time talking to mine apparently but you know, which I do. I think you bring up a really good point, though. I think the reality is technology is here. We can't avoid it. So we do have to figure out how do I want to manage it in a way that's good for me and my family. And part of it starts with essentially being more mindful. 
a lot of what's happening is we are just kind of going through the motions and coasting. And what I think is helpful is to model for kids to slow down and pay mm -hmm. attention to how do we actually feel? Because there isn't a formula. I can't write out a prescription and say it's this amount of screen time per child, per day, per hour. It's, it doesn't work that way. Sure. What I think we have a real opportunity here to do is teach kids from a young age how to tune in, how to pay attention and make that connection between, okay, when I'm using technology, what do I notice about my psychological well-being? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, how am I feeling? How am I thinking and how am I acting? Do I notice that when I shut down screens an hour before bed, not only is my quantity of sleep better, but the quality and I wake up less cranky? Do I notice that when I take a break from social media, I actually feel less heightened and edgy and I actually feel more connected and I'm doing more things that I often don't have time for? To me, that's part of the answer is really role modeling that for kids and helping them start to make a connection between what they're doing and how they actually feel. So, it, and again, it's for each household will have a different implementation plan. Basically, it, it comes down to, and look, there's nothing wrong with going out playing kickball, kids. They're like, yeah, right, Aunt Rose. But there's nothing wrong with that because that's what we had to do. Uh, Jody Baumstein is a licensed therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and she's with the Strong for Life team. If you have some more questions, please email me because I will send them to Jody. And again, this is just through her. She's a licensed therapist, so she's not, you know, going to give you advice, but can give you some tips. Jody, thank you so much for taking time. I appreciate it. And I promise I will get those 45 hours and 28 minutes per seven days. I'm going to get it down because now I feel really bad that my producer, <laughs> Daniel, says, not in fact check, I should be doing that. He said, what did you say it was, Daniel? 24 minutes? What? 26 hours. 26 hours. Okay. Mine was 45 hours. Oh, goodness. Well, if, if you can, Rose, just instead of the deficit, which is how we typically look at things, look at what you gain from that extra time. Think about when you cut back on the screen time, what are the things you can actually engage in that you've been missing? Fair enough. <laughs> Spoken like a true licensed therapist. Thank you so much. And a good one Thank at that. You. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Rose. <laughs> Closer Look continues here on WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Y'all quit. Don't don't judge me about my screen time. OK, I'm I'm a journalist. A sweeping reform bill on mental health care in Georgia is now headed to Governor Brian Kemp for his 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 signature. A bill allowing Georgia residents to carry handguns in public without a license or background check is nearing final passage. Could a gambling measure get through that would put the question to voters as for as in terms of a step toward legalizing this form of gaming? Lots to get to, so let's bring in our WABE politics team of Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass. They are surviving. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Rose. <laughs> Sam, I heard you I all this morning up on NPR talking about Gwinnett, uh, redistricting, I said, redrawing maps. I said, look at Sam. He's working overtime. <laughs> it's important stuff. It is, and it was, a good, it was a good feature, too, by the way. Very proud of you. Um, let's begin here. Raul, we'll start with you. We're just days away from signing die. Tell our listeners how significant that day is. It's the end. It, it really <laughs> okay. is. I mean, so the Georgia legislature works on two year terms. Um, so any bill that did not make it last year, it was still alive when we restarted um, in January. Anything that doesn't make it to the governor's desk this time around, it's dead, dead. And, and, and the best way for me to explain it to people is in January of next year, we will start with House Bill number one and Senate Bill number one. We will start everything all over again. The next big thing that happens is, you know, any bills that did get out, the governor has 40 days to either sign or veto them. So that, that's really what we're what we're at. And, and it's. Um, and there's, it's going to be a big rush. Just uh, so the Senate Rules Committee is meeting right now, and the chairman started the meeting saying, "We have 135 bills to consider, and probably only 80 of them will get on the calendar." And I don't know if they're going to cover 80 bills over the next uh, on Friday and Monday. So at this point, on this day, during this time, during the one o'clock p.m. broadcast of Closer Look, do measures still have a chance to make it to the governor? And if you had to put a percentage on it. Would, could it be 
It depends. It depends on the bill. It depends there. Look, we're going to talk about uh, permitless carry. Mm -hmm. That's getting done. Um, Some of the smaller bills, I don't know. And so, well, there's a lot for us to figure out of what's what's going to make it and what's not. Sam, let's get then to an update on that constitutional carry bill. But first, for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, what will it do? So as you said at the top of the show, this basically makes permits optional for carrying a handgun. Uh, You already don't need one in Georgia to carry a long gun. And uh, Democrats have been really critical uh, because they say that this is a step where sometimes the only background check will happen. Um, But this has been a really big priority for Kemp and for Republicans for a long time who see expanding gun access as kind of a crime fighting measure. So as Raul mentioned, this is one of these things that is so close to the finish line. Uh, it's hard to see it not getting done. So it is likely will make it to Governor Kemp. Yep. It has gone through the House already, has gone through the Senate already. It just now needs to go back to the Senate for a very final sign off on the changes to the bill that the House made over the last couple of days. And then that one will be sailing off to the governor's desk. Uh, It's been a key campaign priority for him, too. So uh, he is pretty certain to sign it. We've been talking a lot about cityhood bills. We already had a funeral for Buckhead City, for the Buckhead City measure. Raul, can you recap what cityhood measures or even Sam have made it through and through any that might be left? So there, are, I don't see any that are left. East Cobb, Lost Mountain, and Vinings will be on the ballot in May in Cobb County. Uh, Mableton is on the governor's desk, just hasn't been signed. When it does get signed, in our expectation it's going to get signed, that is going to be uh, a November referendum. Now, the interesting thing, I haven't done any reporting, but I'm starting to see reporting about this idea of the city of North Decatur. That's that's starting to float out there. And that's, uh, it would basically be that area that borders kind of in, this, in North Decatur between 285 on the east, 85 on the west, and then like Emory University and North Druid Hills to the south and make that all a city. So that's, that's going to be interesting. And, and, and one other thing, kind of a bigger question that's coming up at the Capitol now, mm-hmm. is everybody going to become a city or a town in Metro Atlanta? Kind of like feeling like how the Northeast is. There's not really counties. It's all about, it's all about cities and whether it's counties or cities controlling police, fire, zoning, economic development. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think this is going to happen like in rural Georgia. I think they're going to be happy with the county, but here, is there really going to be county governments or what is the role of county governments? That's, mm-hmm. and then on top of all of that, the idea of local control and, and, and what is the role of Republicans and Democrats on, on state versus local control? And I think our friends over at Decaturish might've been reporting that, that North Decatur, whatever city it was, might've even just came in too late. I mean, it, it did to our knowledge in terms of why folks waited, waited so late to try to get this, uh, you know, somehow passed through the state legislature. Uh, again, I didn't see an actual bill on it. Yeah. I think this is being kind of floated out there. Um, yeah, and I did see the Decatur story. I have not seen an actual bill on the city of North Decatur. Let me just have this again. The city of Cheshire Bridge. Rose Scott for mayor. Uh, <laughs> let's turn to gambling. What's the latest with my that? Vote. You got my vote. See, Sam, I knew I could depend on you. <laughs> let's turn to gambling. What's the latest? So gambling um, is right now in the House Rules Committee, and and the bill's been changed again. Right now, what it looks like at this very moment, again on on Thursday at one in the afternoon, one thirty four and one forty in the afternoon, it looks like it is a voter referendum only on sports betting. You know, we had talked about this idea of putting everything on the ballot and going from there. Mm-hmm. Right now, it looks like only sports betting, and and, and you know. It's believed a, about $100 million would come to the state of Georgia from that. That money would be used for traditional hope and pre-K, along with needs-based scholarships. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's what's out there. But here's the question. Can they get 120 votes in the House and along with getting a two-thirds vote? Because to put something on the ballot, it has to be two-thirds. Mm-hmm. That all the You need Republican and Democrat votes. And I just don't know if the votes are there. It's going to be... If it goes to the floor for a vote, it really is going to be one of those we're sitting there not knowing the result until, you know, it pops up. Mm. What's up with this film tax credit? It's got some folks stewing uh, back and forth. I, it's 
Well, let me tell you what was proposed and then what I believe just happened moments ago. So it's there's this whole discussion about is too much money going out the door on the film tax credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, supporters say, look, this is employing a lot of people in Georgia. It's bringing a lot of money to Georgia. Opponents are like, it's costing the state coffers way too much money. And the idea was to cap it. That's not a big deal. The idea of capping the tax credit, not a big deal. What was a big deal is these big film companies come to Georgia, take the tax credit. But since their tax bill is not that big, mm-hmm. they turn around and sell the tax credit to Georgia companies for, for you know, like maybe 80 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. They make that money in cash. And then the person who buys it like a corporation lowers their tax bill by, by some significant percentage. So taking away the ability to transfer film tax credit was actually the big deal. What I think just happened moments ago in the Senate rules committees, I think they just blew up that bill. So Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what just happened. This may be a non-story by the time we get rolling tomorrow. Uh, Sam, you were following a lot of the education-related bills and measures. Anything that you're watching or that you know of that might might possibly make it that didn't or some that made it and folks didn't even know he made it? So Raul and I were just updating our little tracker on a Google Doc this morning <laughs> about what has made it, what hasn't, what might, what probably won't. Um, there's a couple that are really close to passage that are almost certain to get over the finish line in time because they have been priorities of the governor and Republican leadership. Uh, I'm thinking of the divisive, so-called divisive concepts bills mm-hmm. that's dealing with how race is taught in classrooms. That is super close to getting over the final hurdle. Um, the legislature just yesterday passed uh, a bill dealing with how parents can try and get books removed from schools. So that's headed to the governor's desk. Um, the one that I think might die, it could still move, but is the trans kids and sports mm-hmm. that hasn't had a hearing uh, in a House committee yet. There is not much time left to do that. It is possible that that might not make it before this session ends. Um, and, you know, as we, sorry, go ahead. No, go finish. You're good. So I was just going to say, you know, there's two days left. There's still a lot of time for stuff to happen. But, you know, things can only go so far. If you haven't had a committing hearing yet, you know, it can still happen. But the chances might be a little more slim. For our listeners who may not be aware of the process, does a measure need to have a committee hearing for before it becomes up for a vote? Well, what I, mean, the, I, I don't know the answer to that. Probably ways around it, but traditionally... I mean, it does have to get out of that. It, it does have to get out of that House committee. Mm-hmm. Um, or what we're lo- talking about is a a copy paste. This language gets copied from right, one Which bill is where I was and- going, because you could take something and put it on a, I don't know, let's make the possum the state animal, and it gets passed. I don't, I'm just- and that, that's been a fear of some pro- uh, opponents of this measure is that it could get slid into, say, the divisive concepts bill and could kind of circumvent this process. Um, one House Democrat did tell me that, you know, he wondered if Speaker Ralston had assigned this bill to the House and hum- the House Human Services Committee instead of the H- Education Committee, mm-hmm. because it might have a better chance of getting quashed there uh, compared to maybe the more partisan um, leaders of the Education Committee. So I don't know. We'll see. Let's shift for a moment because with this legislative session about to wrap up, many of the lawmakers, those with district challenges, will be hitting the campaign trail, and it is a major election year as well. Are there particular statewide races or district races that you all be paying attention to and why? Sam, I'll stick with you. Go ahead. So, so of course, we are going to be watching the governor's race, the Senate races. These are marquee races, and they're for a good reason. But let me talk about a race that's a little bit further down the ballot, and that's for Secretary of State. Um, you've got B. Wynn, who is the likely Democratic nominee. But before all that, there's a big primary matchup between Congressman Jody Heiss and the incumbent Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Um, Trump has endorsed Heiss because he says Raffensperger didn't do enough to help him overturn the election mm-hmm. in 2020. And, you know, Trump came to Georgia on Saturday and rallied all of his endorsed candidates. And he spent so much of that time talking about false claims about election integrity, claims that Heiss echoed in his own speech up on the stage. This race is going to be incredibly consequential, uh, just given how politically charged election administration has become in this day and age. And the stakes for the functioning of our democracy in the state is actually really huge. I'm curious, Sam, because you mentioned that on the Democratic side for Secretary of State would be when you said that she was likely going to win. But we don't know that, right? 
We don't yeah, know that. Raul, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I can't remember if she has challengers in the Democratic primary yet. I think she has raised the most money and okay. has attracted the most support so far. I don't remember. I don't want to get an email because of you, she, Sam. I say likely because of the money and there, she, I think there may be some other folks who are in that race, but who just don't have the name recognition or the money that right. she has for my so emails to you, Sam. So the people in that race are Michael Owens, who mm-hmm. I think ran for 13 congressional Floyd Griffin, who's the former mayor of Milledgeville and a former state Senator John Eves. You guys mm-hmm. remember John Eves. He's in that race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and D, D Dawkins Hagler, who was a former state representative. So there it's a quite a large Democratic field, along, of course, with the Republican field that that has uh, Judge Hudson, Jody Heist, David Bell Isle, and, and Brad Raffensperger. So two pretty big races, and, and, and those are going to be races I'm going to be watching, uh, especially when they get to debating. As we wrap up real quickly, Sonny Dye is Monday, correct? Yep. What's that day like, Raul and Sam? This will be your first one. How excited are you? Raul, take it. <laughs> Uh, my favorite words about uh, signing die is hurry up and wait. Um, there's a lot of breaks. We're going to have a lunch break, a dinner break, random breaks. We're going to go at ease. We're going to go to Reese. It's a lot of hurry up and then suddenly things happen. Um, I'm going to be watching medical cannabis. There is so much discussion about mm-hmm. medical cannabis at capital. And, and so, you know, I, there's, it's been a slugfest over that. So, I will definitely be watching that. There's obviously gambling. Mm-hmm. That's going to deal over the next couple of days. Just there's so much. Oh, the, we haven't even talked about the abortion bill, which is in committee today. Yeah, yeah. Um, are, but don't don't worry. We're going to talk about it. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot to cover. So uh, Friday is going to be wild, and Monday is going to be wilder. Sam, your first signy die. What are you going to wear? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe a tie, but for a long day like Signy Die, uh, definitely sneakers. Definitely <laughs> sneakers, and I'll be packing my snacks and stocking up on sleep this weekend. So, WABE politics team of Raul Bali and Sam Gringlass, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Y'all rock. Thanks, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Reminder to know, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as y'all love to do, rose at wabe.org. And remember, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.